This podcast has been prepared exclusively for institutional, wholesale, professional clients, and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. Please read other important information, which can be found on the link at the end of the podcast episode. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Eye on the Market podcast. This is the fourth podcast in the series and last uh, in the series that we're doing on this year's energy paper. Obviously, it's been a bit, a little bit delayed based on the work we've been doing around what's been going on with inflation, the Fed, and the evolving bear market. Uh, we did a client webcast recently and a piece I wrote called Dearly Beloved that talked through how in most cycles uh, the, the markets price in uh, the severe economic adjustments in advance by several months. That appears to be playing out this time as well. The economy is barely weakened and we're already in a bear market. Uh, I wrote at the time that I expected one more leg down this summer. It looks like that leg is happening right now. Uh, and we will obviously be on the lookout for stabilization in the leading indicators, which historically in almost every cycle have been pretty good leading indicators of when it's a good time to start thinking about reinvesting. Uh, also been working on a project for Jamie related to the bank itself, uh, liquidity and supplementary um, capital ratios and liquidity ratios that may pose problems for liquidity and fixed income markets as all the fiscal and monetary stimulus is withdrawn. We're going to make that piece available to people that happen to be interested in that topic. It's highly technical, but I think it's very important. So anyway, let's get started on this topic of hydrogen, which was the longest section in our paper this year. There's a lot of excitement about hydrogen. Um, before it all unraveled, hydrogen-linked stocks had quadrupled from 2019 to 2020. And a lot of giant hydrogen research reports have been written by uh, J, you know, um, Wall Street firms, J.P. Morgan, the investment bank included, talking about the long-awaited arrival of the hydrogen economy. Uh, in Europe, they've also talked about hydrogen as a critical option for, to reduce reliance on Russian energy. Let, so let's be clear about a few things, because I called this section hydrogen. Uh, to be clear, hyd the hydrogen economy, as people refer to it, is in its complete infancy. There are some legacy uses that are completely reliant on fossil fuels to create the hydrogen, um, and they're used to create ammonia for fertilizer and also in oil refining to reduce the sulfur content of diesel fuel. A very, very teeny-weeny amount is also used in steel production as a reducing agent for, for iron ore. But the big picture is that almost no hydrogen, zero, is used today in power, transport, home heating, shipping, rail, aviation, and all the other use cases. And not only that, almost all hydrogen is created by steam reformation of fossil fuels, which is known as gray hydrogen. And, and less than 1% is created by electrolysis, which is referred to using renewable energy, which is called green hydrogen. And, and again, to clarify, hydrogen is not a native energy source, it's an energy carrier. And since the year 2000, something like 2% of global primary energy has been converted into hydrogen each year, and, and that number really hasn't changed much. So the purpose of this section was to explore some of the, of the theories of the hydrogen optimists and to take a closer look at whether or not they make any sense. And the, the tagline is 
here that you know some of them do, but over a very long period of time, a lot of them don't, uh, and and this whole thing is going to take an enormous amount of time to play out. So I'm going to walk through on this podcast some of the highlights of the section that we had, um, and so I'm going to go in order of the of the things that are mentioned to me by the hydrogen optimists. One example is there's about twenty five thousand natural gas compressors that are used as part of the natural gas ecosystem and they actually consume about two to three percent of all natural gas to to do the compression related to its uh, extraction and transmission and so midstream energy companies are now considering using hydrogen to power them instead does this make sense well if they were to use today's gray hydrogen which is produced with again with fossil fuels via steam methane reformation then it wouldn't make sense at all. That would actually increase CO2 emissions compared to just using natural gas directly in the compressors because of the roughly 30% losses involved in the conversion of natural gas to hydrogen. So in other words, why convert natural gas to hydrogen when you can just directly use the natural gas and and have less energy loss? So uh, as we'll explore, a lot of the use cases really rely on the emergence of, of competitive green hydrogen, which is, which is not really in anywhere in sight. Um, another thing that you read about is midstream companies thinking about blending hydrogen into existing natural gas pipelines. Um, again, that only makes sense if they used green hydrogen, and there are limits as to how much green hydrogen you can blend in. So at blending rates over 10% or so, a lot of the equipment might have to be replaced. Uh, there's, there's something called embrittlement, which refers to cracking and other pipeline degradation. So uh, out on Long Island, where I am sequestered uh, right now, um, they plan to blend up to 20% green hydrogen into the natural gas system, uh, and they intend to expand it to other places in the Northeast. You know, we'll see what happens. Um, a piece just came out from the International Renewable Energy Agency that's critical of pipeline blending because they estimate that blending green hydrogen with natural gas achieves very limited CO2 reductions at a very high cost of about $500 a ton. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's what we have to say about um, hydrogen blending, which is kind of like an ethanol concept in gasoline. So then the next thing people will bring up to me is, well, what about blue hydrogen? So gray hydrogen, as we discussed, is, is hydrogen that's produced from steam, methane, reformation, fossil fuels. Blue hydrogen is the same thing, except you're capturing the carbon emissions and storing them underground geologically. And as many of you know who have read the energy paper over the last few years, carbon capture and storage may be the single most overhyped industrial process in the modern era, with thousands of academic papers written on it, and still today, about 0.1% of global CO2 emissions are sequestered underground. Europe's forging ahead with a bunch of new projects. So is the U.S. And by 2030, they will capture around 1% of their annual CO2 emissions. It's a very long process. Um, There are all sorts of legal and permitting complexities involved. And the infrastructure needs are, are frankly enormous, which is something that we've written about in the past, um, for carbon capture and storage to have a more substantial impact, the infrastructure that gets built to handle it 
might have to rival the size of the existing U.S. oil pipeline infrastructure, which has taken 100 years to build. Um, I won't go into too much detail, but on top of all that, uh, Bob Howarth at Cornell uh, wrote a paper recently criticizing blue hydrogen, saying that the, G, the, G, the total GHG impact of blue hydrogen is more than 20% higher than the GHG impact of just burning natural gas or coal directly. Um, and you, if, you, if you read the paper, you can, we'll, we explain some of the reasons why he says that. Uh, so anyway, um, not so optimistic on anything related to blue hydrogen or uh, sequestration. So then let's get back to this issue of green hydrogen costs, because if, if hydrogen could be produced via electrolysis powered by renewable energy at low costs, then that would be something interesting to talk about. Uh, Goldman, for example, uh, and, and many other firms are projecting very steep declines in electrolysis, green electrolysis costs over the next decade, based on learning curves that have been seen on wind and solar and batteries. Um, and to give you a sense, green, green hydrogen costs are somewhere, because it's hard to say where they are because it, it doesn't even exist really, but it's somewhere between 5 and $8 a kilogram uh, compared to one to two, maybe two and a half dollars a kilogram for gray hydrogen. Um, so then the question is, and, and this came up obviously earlier this year, given Russia's invasion and the impact on European natural gas prices, isn't Europe much closer to parity between green and gray hydrogen because it costs them so much more to create, uh, to pay for natural gas at even the higher prices. Maybe, but only if you believe that industrial companies are going to base 20-year or longer investment decisions on, on capital plants to do this kind of thing on wild gyrations in the spot market, which they generally don't. And um, we have some charts in here that look at the details. Um, if, here's one example of parity. If, if gray hydrogen producers had to pay $20 a BTU for power, uh, for natural gas, uh, and $30 a megawatt hour for wind and solar power, then, then maybe you, you're closer to parity. But again, this approach is only relevant if industrial companies think that today's wartime price levels are representative of the next 20, 10 to 20 years. And um, obviously in Europe, a lot depends upon what happens to natural gas prices as Russian pipeline gas is gradually replaced by more imported LNG. Um, but... For what it's worth, the forward curve for natural gas is already pricing in like a 33% decline by next year. And so I've seen some data, uh, including from a J.P. Morgan sell-side report that talks about how green hydrogen costs are competitive across several end uses. And in my opinion, it was just very misleading. Uh, the chart was based on wartime March 2022 spot prices for, for gas. Um, it didn't assume any increase in electricity costs, despite the fact that those costs have been rising. Uh, it didn't incorporate capital costs for steel production, and it didn't make it clear that it was just for Europe in the first place. So uh, my sense is that some of the green hydrogen projects underway are taking place despite the fact that they're going to be more expensive and not because they've reached some kind of cost parity with, with gray hydrogen. One last comment on this green hydrogen question. So Europe plans on producing and importing it. Um, they've got about one and a half gigawatts of electrolyzer capacity under construction. 
if we add in all the projects that, that have reached the final investment decision stage in Europe, they'd have around 40 gigawatts of electrolyzer capacity. And if all the green hydrogen produced from it uh, were used, for example, in oil refining, um, that would offset around 2.5% of EU emissions. And if it were used for something related to transportation instead, like hydrogen trucks, the emissions offset would be lower because of the fuel cell conversion losses in vehicles. So the green hydrogen projects in, in Europe seem to have been started, but they are definitely not transformational. And the other big question I have, where is all the green electricity going to come from to run these electrolyzers, right? I mean, you, the, the plan here is let's, um, let's create green electricity, but Europe via wind and solar power, but Europe is trying to add more solar and wind onto the regular grid just to displace coal and natural gas. Um, Europe generates about 40% of its electricity from renewables, but half of, almost half of that is hydropower. And so one of their stated goals is to decarbonize the existing grid. And so if Europe's wind and solar additions are used mostly to displace coal, gas, and also to decommission some nuclear power, I'm not sure where all the new hydrogen-dedicated wind and solar capacity is going to come from. Um, so shifting gears for a minute, there's, there's a lot of discussion about the potential for hydrogen as a fuel for long-haul shipping. Um, that may make some sense. Certainly batteries are, are nonsense for shipping given the cost and energy density issues. And... Um, uh, the challenge is how to, how to store and transport it. Uh, hydrogen has a very low energy density by volume, and the size of these storage tanks on the ships might be very large, even if they use liquefied hydrogen, which has to be stored at a cryogenic temperature of like minus 250 degrees centigrade. So um, uh, there's a lot of work that still has to be done here, and the bottom line is that most scientists that have looked at this say there's really not yet any hydrogen storage solution that combines a high energy density, low energy inputs to create, has easily available resources, is non-toxic, and is easy to handle and store. And um, so Wartzilla and MAN and a bunch of other companies have announced some green, enya, green ammonia engine projects for the next few years. Um, we'll see how it goes. Um, ammonia uh, has the ability to... to carry hydrogen uh, and can be liquefied at, at much higher temperatures than hydrogen. Um, it's got better hydrogen density than some of the other alternatives, but all of these conversions carry energy penalties. And so, for example, if you're going to use, if you're going to create hydrogen through electrolysis and then convert the hydrogen into ammonia and then convert the ammonia back to hydrogen, the round trip efficiency might be just 11 to 19%. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm anxious to see how the actual all-in costs of some of this stuff play out. In the piece, we get into some of the more specific issues about liquid organic hydrogen carriers and dibenzyltoluene. Um, the bottom line is that all of these things are still on the drawing board, and, and I think it will take the better part of a decade to, to, to at least come up with a, with a plan as to how to scope out the hydrogen economy. Now, let's talk now a little bit about steel production. What about using hydrogen as a reducing agent for primary steel production? There are some steel makers uh, in Europe that have announced demonstration plans to do this. Um, 
and and you know green hydrogen can be used as a reducing agent. You take iron ore, you transform it into sponge iron, and then you convert that to steel in an electric arc furnace. And most of the thing can be elect. Most of the process is is inherently electrified. Only uses a small amount of carbon, and some estimates show decarbonization potential of around seventy percent from this kind of process. Um, the issue is the is the timeline, and who's doing it. Um, most of the estimates we've seen uh, are twenty thirty to twenty forty, somewhere in that decade, as to when this would become cash competitive in in the Nordics, which are at the cutting edge of of this kind of research. And the other problem is the Nordic countries represent just half a percent of global steel production. China, the elephant in the room is China, which produces more than 50% of the world's steel. Um, their steel plants are younger and still you know, are, are far from their mothball dates. Um, and so you know, the, the timeline for adoption in China is really the, the issue that matters here. Um, trucking, trucking looks interesting. Um, Certainly, it's, it's given the faster refueling rates for hydrogen trucks compared to electric vehicles, um, that's interesting. But uh, you have to get into the details about the cost, supply chain, and operational differences between electric batteries and hydrogen fuel cells. And so um, using hydrogen for long-haul trucking um, makes some sense if you compress the hydrogen. But... Uh, uh, you know, let's see where it goes. I mean, there there are some companies working on this, but their companies are in their infancy, and uh, they have limited track records for cost, performance, maintenance, durable lives, warranties, and you know, we'll have to see how it goes. Cummins Engine, for example, expects just two to three percent hydrogen shares in long haul heavy duty trucking by 2030. Um, so we'll have to see whether or not these Class Eight hydrogen fuel cell trucks can be delivered. And for those of you that remember the fuel cell truck company, Nikola, which was a SPAC, um, that was kind of humorous. They, they ended up staging their hydrogen truck rollout and federal prosecutors have indicted them for fraud and all sorts of other things. What about hydrogen to power um, passenger and freight rail? Well, obviously it makes no sense to use hydrogen on rail that's already electrified because anything that's already electrified, you can use renewable energy directly. Um, uh, so what about non-electrified passenger and freight rail? Um, we'll see. There's, there's some proof of concept here. There's a handful of hydrogen trains in operation, so the proof of concept exists. Um, uh, but you know, first of all, rail itself only count, accounts for 1% of global transport CO2 emissions. And one of the reasons for that is, if in terms of passenger rail, 70% of rail kilometers traveled uh, were already electrified five years ago. So the larger opportunity for hydrogen is to replace the diesel-powered freight. But then in China, Russia, and India, large portions of freight rail are already electrified as well. So the largest hydrogen opportunity in trains would be in the U.S., which has a very large freight rail system, uh, but we don't really see any movement on this. Um, and there might also be competition from batteries. Uh, there's, I, I think there's a couple of hydrogen rail projects in the U.S. One of them is a small passenger rail project in San Bernardino, California. So that doesn't seem like that's moving anywhere anytime fast. And, and then in the paper, we talk about 
backup power, you know, the, the preposterous notion of hydrogen-powered aviation, you know, I'm, I'm willing to bet that in 25 years it's still nowhere, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the big picture here is that a lot depends on how quickly the costs of green hydrogen decline, uh, the time and cost required to build electrolyzer storage and distribution, and then don't forget the time it takes for all the world's machines and engines to be redesigned to use hydrogen instead. So these energy transformations don't just require declining costs of production of, of the fuel. You also need to have the time for the physical plant for energy distribution and the machines that consume the energy would have to change as well. So the bottom line is over the next decade, this hydrogen economy may entail small pockets of modest demand for some natural gas pipeline blending, a little bit of shipping and trucking, some steel demonstration projects, and a couple of freight projects in the United States. And if so, there may be a handful of opportunities for investors in, in specific hydrogen companies. But it doesn't look to us like the future of hydrogen is anywhere near the explosive hockey stick forecast that you see in today's renewable energy research. Um, uh, and so that's the bottom line from our hydrogen piece. Um, thank you to all of you that have listened to these energy podcasts. Uh, we, this was a, I think it's a really important topic. Uh, we spent a lot of time on this year's paper and we're already starting to work on the energy paper for next year. Thank you for listening. and We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Michael Semblis, Eye on the Market, offers a unique perspective on the economy, current events, markets, and investment portfolios, and is a production of J.P. Morgan Asset and Wealth Management. Michael Semblis is the Chairman of Market and Investment Strategy for J.P. Morgan Asset Management and is one of our most renowned and provocative speakers. For more information, please subscribe to the Eye on the Market by contacting your J.P. Morgan representative. If you'd like to hear more, please explore episodes on iTunes or on our website. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and is a communication on behalf of J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments, Incorporated. Views may not be suitable for all investors and are not intended as personal investment advice or as solicitation or recommendation. Outlooks and past performance are never guarantees of future results. This is not investment research. Please read other important information which can be found at www.jpmorgan.com forward slash disclaimer dash EOTM.